0: Mind is a terrible thing to waste.
1: You cannot define yourself in reference to other external coordinates. You must define yourself internally with your relationship with a higher entity.
0: Stop it! (laughs) I'm sorry? Stop it! Stop it? Yes! S-T-O-P, New word, I-T. This week on Mind Matters. It's time to turn down the noise and listen to what really matters. Join counselor and author Rita Schulte and me, Richard Beatty, in renewing your mind because your mind matters. So come on in and join us.
2: This week on Mind Matters, we have Brad Hambrick back to talk more about anger. And as I said, has anybody out there been angry at God? Well, of course you have. You wouldn't be human if you weren't. But nobody gets mad at God for something small when we're angry with God it's because we face something immensely hard. That's usually titrates into a loss of some kind. Anger is an often overlooked part of grieving and as such is an appropriate response to profoundly painful events. Counselor Brad Hamburg provides readers with a guided process to being honest with God about their pain to restore and deepen their relationship with him. So one of the things I really liked, uh, Brad, about this is that you bring up in chapter five, this idea that it's lonely being angry. And I've been kind of camped on this loneliness thing for the last few months and want to pitch a a new book idea about this. Talk about that. Why do you bring that up? Because I think it's really interesting and it's really important.
1: Uh, And this is one where like if anger is anywhere in the room, it gets all the attention. You know, that is true, like socially, uh, it's true with us inside of ourselves. And sometimes, again, we're talking about anger that's a part of a major hurt and we kind of feel contagious. I don't want to share this with somebody else. I don't want to be a burden. Um, it. Um, I don't want to mess up somebody else's life. Uh, then we're like, ah, are they going to get it? If they get it, are they sturdy enough to bear it? I don't want this to be who I am. Like right now, this is like central for me, but going forward, I don't want this to be how people know me. And so there's a whole variety of things uh, that we can experience when we're hurt uh, that makes the anger that emerges from that begin to feel very isolated and lonely.
2: Yeah, I think anger is definitely because nobody else, again, like with grief, nobody can sit in our skin with how we feel in terms of loneliness or in terms of anger. So if I'm really angry and nobody else gets that, I'm just emoting that. But nobody's really feeling that pain that that I've gone through in terms of, you know, a transgression against me. And so that isolates me. Nobody can really understand that. They don't get it. Maybe they can say, "Oh, well, that's really awful that that that's happening to you." But when we sit in our anger, we're left alone. You know, we're, we're really left alone.
1: Yeah, and there's the proverb. I think it's fourteen. I think twelve. I uh, probably wouldn't pass my wanna test right now. Uh, but uh, only the heart knows its own bitterness. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there is a uniqueness to each experience. Um, that uh, if your listeners are on that friend side, you know, like, okay, I, I'm i not going to fully get it. I'm not going to feel it as you feel it. Um, I'll use a music metaphor here. When we can at least harmonize with that experience, uh, it may not be in us at the same volume. It, But when the person can tell, like, we're, we're not pulling away, we're not going mute, we're not getting timid, uh, but they can draw out the things that, like, ah, this is, this is what makes that hurtful. This is, this makes sense. I, those, if we can harmonize in some way where we're not trying to say we understand, but we are moving towards and uh, trying to get a better understanding of where they are, not to master it, uh, but uh, in order to. Um, in order for them to show that we care.
2: I guess I just wonder kind of like, what are we looking for? I mean, I'm just going on my own experience. Any kind of feedback with anger, with grief? I mean, what is it you think people are looking for? What do we want? You got to get my pain in order for me to be okay. But what do you think? Go ahead.
1: A lot of what I think we're after when we go through something in grief is we're struggling to assimilate whatever this event is into our story. And so during that raw period, we're still fighting and like, there's got to be some way this is not true. It can't be true. I don't want it to be true. And so that the heat comes from the friction of resisting that this really is part of my story. So, and it, and so at whatever point that I begin to move forward, and move forward isn't move past, move past sounds so dismissive, uh, but where. My attention does turn towards the things that God has in front of me. This being a part of my story, something that I can pick up and talk about, and it doesn't, I don't feel like I'm drowning, uh, that I can put down and focus on other things, and it doesn't involuntarily intrude into my thoughts and my emotions. Those are the kind of indicators that this has been assimilated into my story Uh, that doesn't make it less sad, that doesn't make it less hard. It does make me more free in the presence of knowing that it happened.
2: Right. So I think what you're saying is we have to move people toward a place of acceptance while still holding the pain.
1: Yes. Uh, And sometimes like the two words you chose there, acceptance and still acknowledging the pain. Too often we microwave or fast forward uh, that it's either acceptance or pain. Like, I am going to accept it's going. That doesn't mean it still doesn't hurt. But I've assimilated, I've processed it, whatever verb we would use there to such a degree that in the moments where it comes to mind, it doesn't cripple my ability to do the other things that I would do in this moment.
2: Yeah, I think it's assimilating it is, you know, for people that don't know what this means in counseling lingo, it's it's like we... Bring that into our story, as you said, we we but we leave the constructs of our life and our faith and our beliefs in a solid place. That's assimilating. Uh, Accommodating is a whole different ballgame. Right. I've got to uh, rewrite, rewrite the narrative. Okay, so for an example, I had a very strong, obviously, faith when Mike died. You know, I have a strong Christian worldview and that gives my world meaning and it makes, you know, makes sense in my life. And, and so if I say, OK, I now this horrible thing has happened. God's just done this, this horrible thing. My husband's taken his life. I don't believe any of that anymore. You know, I don't believe God's good. I don't believe he's he loves me or he wouldn't have allowed this to happen. Then I've got to now accommodate that into my life story by rewriting the narrative of what I believe and what I hold dear because I'm chucking the faith. And so I've got to, and I think that's the dilemma for people, at least at the beginning of a tragedy for many, for many Christians, because, you know, when I wrote my first book shattered, I was really interested in this question. Why do some people go through terrible tragedies and come out with their faith and their heart still intact and others lose the battle for their faith altogether with seemingly lesser tragedies, no judgment, just curiosity, and I think there was some central tenets that people can anchor themselves to in regard to that question. You know, and I've just been observing of that through my, you know, couple decades of sitting with people counseling. I mean, any thoughts mm-hmm. that you have on this? I mean, I think it's the meaning making piece uh, that you're talking about when we're rewriting the story.
1: It is. I mean, that's um, profoundly difficult events. They are points where we step back and question, is the way I made sense of things strong enough to hold what I've been through? Um, And we'll look at some parts of what we believed and go, "Eh, maybe that was naive. Like there are parts of our faith that until we've been through hard times, it is just not as developed as it needs to be. Um, You know, for most of us, it is, The experience of suffering that makes us develop a understanding of suffering, Um, you know, in terms of the effects of the fall in the world around us. In church, we talk about sin a lot. You know, you need to be saved from sin, forgiven for sin, like that part. uh, We emphasize that more. It's the suffering side uh, that if we're not careful, then we think if something's unpleasant, it's bad. And there are things that are hard. And that's what this book about. Not Like if we need to repent, repent is a beautiful gift. We should thank God for it. But when life is hard, when it's something that prompts grief, when this is mm-hmm. suffering, how do I walk that out with God? Um, like In hard times, we almost wish there was something to repent of. It would give us some degree of control over what's happening. Tell me what I've done wrong and I would gladly repent of it. I mean, how many times does that get said in the book of Job?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, how about how about prayer with all of this? Like, how does prayer help in the grieving process through pain? I mean, do you talk to your clients about that?
1: It, initially, prayer can be hard if the event that we're going through is the death of a loved one, because um, it can almost feel like heaven has a hostage. Um, and that's. Like ah, I want them back, they're with you, they're not with me. Uh, that for a lot of people that can that can make prayer feel hard. Um, it but when we go through these things, I think even folks who aren't uh, people of faith begin to realize the 70, 80, 90 years that we get here uh, on this planet in this world, if this is all there is it all starts to unravel and fall apart. Well, uh, it's like it,
2: Paul said, we're to be pitied more than all men.
1: Right. It, it. There. There's just like, have as much fun as you can for as long as you last. Um, and so prayer is one of those things that, yes, there is all the value of relationship and I'm not reduced. I'm not minimizing that, but it is that hopefully daily moment by moment reminder There is more than what I see here, that the explanation, the resolution, the hope for what I am going through is larger than this window of time that I spend here. Uh, And yes, that could easily be taken as a platitude. But when you go through things of this magnitude, you realize how important it is for that to be true, because if not, like Paul said, we are of all people to be pitied.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I love the story that you talk about in the book, uh, Kendall. Mm-hmm. And so for people that haven't read the book yet, he loses a dog as a child and he's very angry and he takes it out on his parents and he's yelling and he's freaking out and he's accusing them of not care. This is a beautiful thing, like mm-hmm. what we do with God. You don't mm-hmm. care. Right. Um, We know You know, as therapists, so for our listeners, anger is a secondary emotion, meaning it sits underneath more vulnerable or on top of more vulnerable emotions like fear, sadness, shame, hurt, whatever, rejection. And, you know, sometimes we're afraid to show that to others. It's easier to show the anger. Right. And the point I think you're trying to make here is that Kendall was grieving and didn't really or couldn't really put words to the pain. This example was a child, but I think that's true for adults as well. Like, cause I've seen like with a lot of lesser losses, you know, we kind of dismiss those and say, they're not that big of a deal, but throughout time, all those little losses pile up like a stack of unpaid bills. And then one day we either explode or we restart to realize, man, you know, I've hit a wall, I'm depressed. So do you think people have trouble putting words to the pain when they've experienced a loss or or what were you trying to get at with the whole Kendall story?
1: Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it wasn't meant to like make grief and anger seem juvenile, but children are sympathetic figures. And so I wanted the reader to identify with a sympathetic figure in the story, this child who uh, dog died. I wanted the reader to begin to see that well, we could like, As the reader of the story, as the adult eyes on it, we can totally tell this kid is hurting. They're sad. They're grieving. It spikes in just like the day-to-day stuff of life. Like it comes out as anger. The child says all kinds of not true things about the parents. Like you hate me. You knew the dog was going to die when you got it for me. You just did this to torment me. Um, That's the truth though. Right. And it, But like we could hear ourselves saying that and go, when I get lost, that's that that's the spot where I, I don't know what to do. Like, those are the moments where I'm drowning. And that's what I sound like. And, and so that picture of a parent, like if you were Kendall's parent. It you wouldn't start debating the child. Like good parents don't get other don't get their children puppies. Um, it, like, that's not the point. A good parent comes in, sits beside, draws them close and says, Bud, you're hurting, aren't you? Mm. Like, it's okay. And whatever is there, like, you know, if six months from now the child is still screaming, I hate you and you shouldn't have got me a dog, that has solidified. It's not like in Job, words passing after the wind. It, But like a good parent can move towards that child in their hot lament in their angry grief. And a good parent would. And we see that that's what God wants to do for me. Mm -hmm. And that difference between primary and secondary emotions, like for folks who aren't used to that language, um, like you said, primary emotions, they're the more vulnerable. They're things like grief. Secondary emotions are the safer. Uh, They're things like anger. And uh, when we feel hurt, we're like that wounded animal in the woods. They're hurt, they're scared, but they're going to hiss and growl and everything else. And you kind of have to you have to build some peace to get through that, to actually get to minister to whatever it is that's uh, hurt with the animal. So the way I try to portray that to the readers is you can draw the same picture with a red crayon and a gray crayon like you just classic little kid picture with a house and a little bit of smoke and a tree and a car. You can draw that with a red crayon. You can draw that with a gray crayon. If red crayon is anger uh, and gray crayon is grief, one of the early steps of this book is just telling the same story in the more vulnerable way. Telling the same story in the color of gray that assumes I'm talking to somebody who cares. I'm talking whether it's a friend or God, both. I'm talking to somebody who wants to understand, who wants to benefit. They are with me. They're not against me. It is my pain that makes me feel like the whole world's against me. Yeah. Um, so
2: Yeah. Well, the other thing that I want to touch on is, you know, we look at a lot. We've been talking a lot, you know, about grief and and death, but. Mm-hmm. Grief, you know, when we hear hear that word. We usually attach it to to that loss. Grief can be a lot more abstract, and that's what I, you know, wanted to write about in my first book. It can be shattered dreams, unmet expectations, loss of a role. Like for Kendall, like loss. I'm not a, I don't. I'm not the parent of my dog anymore, or whatever. But it's these abstract losses that really can pile up and tear at our soul. What do you, what do you think about that? Like that's not the only situation is a death that we grieve
1: right there's grief narrow and there's grief broad uh, kind of like there's when we think of trauma we tend to think of like military vets and we miss all the other forms of trauma that are out there from abuse and first responders going into horrific scenes and things of that nature um and so the betrayal of a spouse to adultery mm. uh, there's a grieving process there the um, a major injury, chronic pain, where the things that you could have been able to do that you can't, um, the downturn in an economy and losing a career that you have been working to and aspire to, um, you know, if I could summarize grief in a question, it would be, who am I now? So whatever those things are that like, this is how I would introduce myself. Hey, I'm so-and-so spouse. This is my job. Anything that gets into those early introductions of who you are, when those things change and you're left wondering, well, who am I now? Mm. That's grief.
2: Sure. And I like, didn't you talk about lost timeline in the book?
1: Yes. Uh, okay, just- so.
2: Briefly with that, I know. And I love that because I that's a from narrative therapy and I teach about that. And I think that can give us such a, a broad idea of the losses. So what clients are doing, basically, will you explain it? Well, how did you yeah. want people to see that? Well,
1: again, I'll go back to a music metaphor in pain. Life becomes very staccato. Mm. Events become disconnected. There's just these sharp wincing moments, whether it's pain, anger, uh, whatever it is. and it it loses any sense of connection. And it's as if entire life changes in that moment. And these two chapters got ripped out of my book and thrown somewhere else. And so there is a I call it a timeline in topography that we're just resequencing, and we're gaining a sense for the rise and fall across that. So that our life can become one narrative whole again, mm. uh, that this isn't the totality of my life, it's an important chapter of my life, uh, but there's a larger before and after that becomes part of the hope building process.
2: Yeah, that's really awesome, and and I think what I do with it, I use it as you know through narrative therapy where. Mm-hmm. Not only are we recording the losses, but it's an opportunity for me to have people become aware of their strengths and resources. How did God get you through this? Uh, what strengths? do you Because like when you say, who am I now? Well, of course, I'm different. But now I'm owning the fact that, man, I, I'm a perseverer. You know, God is, you know, Christ with me, I can persevere Uh, and wanting them to own those qualities about themselves, because I think we can lose those things in the midst of profound grief. So, you know, it gives us a snapshot of what uh, hard things have clients gone through uh, in their life, but also this you know forward look to resiliency because you know I'm always looking for a client's strengths and their potential for resiliency and I want to build that in early in the process um you know and so I think that's another beautiful way uh using a timeline to to be able to do that so
1: yes and amen to that I'll I'll look at the other direction there's also in what we're grieving of seeing what was good in it Like whether it was that relationship or like with the number of church uh, failings and ministry failings. And sometimes in the midst of it's like, I'm hurt so bad because this was so good. Sure. And to have somebody who can hear you and be like, this is why that betrayal. This is why that disappointment. And we join in, harmonize with that grief by gaining a better understanding of what was good and why it needs to be grieved.
2: Right. And I think in time, and this is tough for folks, because we're so stuck on the why questions. But in time, I want to make that shift, um, you know, to the what's next and, and really, you know, hard question, but what's what good can come of this? And it's not like we're looking at some silver lining and whatever's happened. But how have I personally grown? What's God done in my life? What strengths has God given me? Uh, there's there's good things that can come even out of the worst adversities. And it takes time before people you know want to see that or can see that. And sometimes
1: it's as simple as somebody beginning to listen to the language that they use. When mm. we go through something hard for a period of time, we measure time looking back. Yeah, sometimes it can be as simple as uh, the words that people use to talk about the experience. So we go through something really hard. And initially, it's been two weeks since that happened. It's been three months since that happened. It's been six months since that happened. And our reference point for time is how long it's been since.
0: That's Brad Hambrick, And uh, time is of the essence. We're about to uh, run out of time uh, for this show. This is Richard Beatty in the studio. If you'd like to hear more from Brad Hamrick and Rita Schulte on this issue, uh, go to RitaSchulte.com, S-C-H-U-L-T-E. There's about about eight to ten minutes more of this conversation. Uh, We didn't have time for the broadcast on this, uh, but we will have it on the podcast. So uh, please... uh, Go to RitaSchulte.com, S-C-H-U-L-T-E, and you can hear more uh, from Brad Hamrick and that conversation that Rita Schulte had with Brad. That was a, a great conversation, and uh, I think we all learned a lot from it. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Richard Beatty, and for Rita Schulte, have a great week. Mind Matters is a Crawford original radio program produced by Sound Century Presents. Deception, denial, we hear it, we think it, and we find ourselves in a toxic pool of negative thinking.
2: Everybody out of the pool! Deceptive thoughts take root in the mind, and you've got to change the physical nature of where the brain goes and redirect your thoughts to good. How? By noticing, paying attention. It all starts in your mind. You can buy index cards and write down positive thoughts. Focus on what is good, beautiful, and worthy, and think on these things, not on those things.
0: Sounds like an organizational problem.
2: Exactly. The brain has a system of checks and balances and reorganizes on what you think. When you name the deceptive thought, you can eliminate it by replacing it in your card file by a better thought.
0: So... If I think that I'm not good enough or smart enough to be in the job I'm in,
2: then think of a time you creatively contributed to someone's life. Write it down. That integrates right and left brain. Think of a time you creatively contributed to someone's life. Write it down on your index card. And each time you think that you're not worthy, write down the truth about why you were born for such a time as this.
0: (laughs) Think this, not that. A renewable resource from Mind Matters. Go to RitaShulte